Morning, church. So good to share this time with you this morning. Um, your Bible should be open to Revelation chapter 2. Please look at chapter 2, verse 12, and we'll get started. We're in this series of the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So let's read our passage this morning, the specific letter to the church in Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words of Jesus. Give us ears to hear this morning what you have to teach us. Speak through me now and keep me from error. And may we hear your words with open ears and with open hearts. And may you change us to be more like Christ. Amen. Well, in our house, we have a map of the world on the wall in our dining room. And uh, we use it to teach our kids about different countries and different places. Um, and God's love for the entire world. Our four-year-old daughter, Phoebe, loves to engage when we have these discussions over dinner. Uh, she's always asking about different countries, and we'll oftentimes look at pictures and different people from uh, different places and different buildings. And she'll say, can we go there next week? And she'll say, like, why are they wearing that funny hat? You know, she like always, she's very like inquisitive and engaging. You know, our one-year-old son, Luke, usually just sits there in his high chair and he says, bah. It's like the only word that he knows. So I don't really know what it means, but you know, he can't quite engage on the same level as Phoebe, obviously. Uh, but we do this because we want to show our kids that there's uh, significance to where Jesus has placed us. There's significance to every country, every city in the world, and God has a plan for the entire world. Luke's middle name is William, after a missionary to India who was named William Carey. Now, William Carey, he felt specifically called by God to India, where he lived for 41 years. He faced many challenges. His first wife, after they arrived, suffered a mental breakdown and died shortly after. He remarried and his second wife also died. He had four sons, two of which died before he died. But he stayed committed. 
he spent his time translating the Bible into many different languages. He spent years on this work. And at one point, while he was well along in his work, his entire life's work was burned. He lost everything, but he stayed committed. With all these challenges and difficulties he faced and the many opportunities he had to decide to leave and go to an easier place, he stayed committed to his work. He actually ended up translating the Bible into Hindi and Sanskrit and Bengali and numerous other local languages, as well as leading many to faith in Jesus and starting new churches in India. See, the fruit of his life has been felt for many years beyond his death. Among India and the world, he's been referred to as the father of modern missions, as well as India's first cultural anthropologist. And there are at least from what I could find, 11 different colleges in the world named after him. My wife Heather and I were always so encouraged by his story. We were challenged by his faithful commitment to a particular place. So we pray that our son will grow up and embody this type of commitment and will be faithful to God's call on his life wherever God will call him. So just like the story of William Carey this morning, I want to share with you from our text about how Jesus calls us to remain faithful to where he's placed us, even though it can be hard. So I have three points for us to consider this morning from our text. Let's look at them now. First, Jesus knows where we live. Second, Jesus calls us to be faithful where we live. And third, Jesus gives us what we need to be faithful. So first, Jesus knows where we live. As Wilson mentioned last week, there are specific patterns that we notice as we read through these letters in Revelation. Jesus says, I know to all of the churches. It makes me ask, what does Jesus know? What does Jesus know? Well, let's take a look. To Ephesus, he says, I know your deeds. Thyatira, I know your deeds. To Sardis, I know your deeds. To Philadelphia, I know your deeds. To Laodicea, I know your deeds. But to Pergamum, Jesus says this. I know where you live. See, I think we would all agree that our deeds have some type of significance or what we do with our life um, has some type of significance and meaning. But here Jesus is teaching us in a subtle way that where we live also has significance. So how much thought have you given to where you live? the specific context of where your daily life takes place. Theologians call this idea a theology of place. One theologian says, places are important from a theological and spiritual perspective because it is part of our reality. Reality and contextuality demands a theology of place which can be defined 
as an appreciation for the theological significance of specific geographic locations. Theologian John Inga writes, God, people, and place cannot be separated. So if place is so important, and Jesus is calling our attention particularly to this place in Pergamum, what was the place of Pergamum like? What was so unique about this place that Jesus would divert from his pattern that's very clearly seen in these other letters to call our attention to this place? Pliny the Elder, not, not the beer, the actual person, the ancient historian, he considered Pergamum to be the most important city in the province because of its influence. It was also a very culturally diverse city. It was also known for its religious diversity, having many temples to various gods. See, the context of Pergamum was one of being very hostile to the way of Jesus, very hostile to Christians. So much so that Jesus says Satan literally has his throne there. He even repeats this idea twice in this short passage so that we don't miss it. Let's look at this back in verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. We receive little other insight from the letter directly about what Pergamum was like, other than obviously Jesus referring to it as the place where Satan lives. And also that some followers of Jesus were becoming unfaithful. They were being swayed by other teachings and the many different ideologies of the culture. These accusations of Jesus actually made me think about our city, San Francisco. He says Pergamum was the place where Satan lives. The church of Satan was literally founded here in San Francisco in 1966 by Anton LaVey. That's crazy. Like that's insane. And our city, similar to Pergamum, has vast religious diversity. From the best information I could find, our city has over 100 places of worship to gods other than Jesus. Also, San Francisco has many people who have left the faith. We rank number one, that's not a good thing, but we rank number one on Barna Group's rankings for what they call de-churched cities in America, which surveys people who were previously actively involved in church who have now not attended a church gathering for over six months. See, noticing the similarities to Pergamum and San Francisco makes me want to be uniquely aware of what the challenges were that faced the church of Pergamum. Surely we can learn from what Jesus has to say to this particular church. How does living in a city like this make it harder to follow Jesus? 
How does being in the context of a city like this threaten to tempt Christians to follow other teachings? When we root ourselves into a culture that is pluralistic, how do we keep from absorbing everything that's in the soil? These are important things to think about. Look down at verse 14. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. About this, one commentator says, eating food sacrificed to idols refers to eating meals in idol temples. The pagan feasts held in Asia Minor, honoring the emperor and other deities, featured indulgence in both idolatry and immorality. And citizens were expected to participate. Refusal to participate in such activities could result in economic and social ostracism. Therefore, there was much pressure to compromise. Christians would no doubt have suffered financially from sticking with their principles. Has the thought ever occurred to you that you may be ostracized in our culture for being faithful to the way of Jesus? That you may be excluded from certain invitations, that you may be looked down upon, that you may even be at risk of not getting a promotion or possibly of losing your job altogether. These are real dangers. We need to be aware that there will be moments where we may have to make extremely difficult decisions to stay faithful to the way of Jesus. See, although this letter was written thousands of years ago to a church in a different city, I think that God has something to teach us this morning from this letter. There's something that is really interesting to note in this passage. Not something that is said explicitly, but rather something that is not said. Which brings me to my next point. Jesus calls us to be faithful where we live. Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Jesus says, you live where Satan lives. You live where Satan lives. But even after this strong indictment against the city, get this. Jesus does not call his people to leave. Jesus does not call his people to leave that city. If there was ever a city that was so opposed to Jesus, that was so against his way and teachings, wouldn't Pergamum be that city? If Jesus ever had the right to cause people to leave a city because of their opposition to him, wouldn't Pergamum be that city? 
a city that was too far gone that Jesus says Satan literally lives there. He has his throne there. But Jesus does not call his church to leave the city. He had every right to say to his followers, be done with that city, move on. But that's not what he does. Again, there are patterns in these letters, as we've discussed. Jesus offers a commendation to each of the churches. And for Pergamum, he commends the church for their faithfulness. He commends those who stayed in that city and remained faithful to him. In verse 13, he says, I know where you live where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. Even when remaining true to the name of Jesus might mean being ostracized by the culture, being outcast, being persecuted, or even literally being killed as Antipas was, Jesus did not call them to leave. Why would Jesus want his church to stay where Satan lives? Why would Jesus explicitly tell his church, you live where Satan lives, and then insinuate that he's glad that they're there? Have you ever gotten a note from a family member who doesn't live in the city maybe? They say, why would you choose to live in San Francisco as a Christian? They probably call it San Fran or something. Um, All it takes is a quick search through the comments of any news article about San Francisco to see tons of people condemning our city, right? Claiming it is faithless. It is horrible and God has forgotten it. One comment I read said this, God has removed his hand of protection from California. but that's not what Jesus says here. You see, Jesus has a plan. Jesus wants to redeem cities. And he does this through his church. You see, Jesus has a plan to redeem even when we might not be able to see it. He was still at work in Pergamum. He still had a plan for his church there. So let me ask you this. Do you believe God has a plan for his church in San Francisco? Do you believe that God has a plan for you specifically here in San Francisco? I believe that. See, just like the church in Pergamum existed in a specific context and place, God and his wisdom has chosen to put us in a specific place, San Francisco. There is significance in our presence here in the city. So why has God put you here? What does God have for you in this city?
See, I promise you there are specific answers to those questions. God uses our context, our place, as a way to shape us, to form us to be more like Jesus. American poet Wendell Berry says this, he says, our sense of wholeness is not just the sense of completeness in ourselves, but also is the sense of belonging to others and to our place. Even Winston Churchill was a believer in the importance of place. He said, first we shape our buildings and then our buildings shape us. See, there's a shaping of ourselves, a purification that happens in us, a formation that happens in us when we commit to a place. Our commitment to place goes beyond simply a physical existence in one location. It will involve our whole selves, our bodies, yes, but also our hearts, our words, even our thoughts. See, one of the ways it's helped us uh, in our commitment to San Francisco is paying attention to how we think and talk about the city. What we say about our place often influences our experience of place. Have you ever heard these phrases? Raising kids here is hard. The schools really are not that great. Everyone is leaving. The streets are too dirty. The houses are too expensive. The drug problem is just getting worse. See, the more we fill our minds with these thoughts, the more they will affect our experience of place. Keep repeating these phrases over and over and over again and they will become the only things you think about. And of course, why would you want to stay? But I challenge you to think differently about our city. How about this? I'm excited to see how God continues to work in this city. I love that God has called me here. Or even things like this. Like, I love raising my kids in a world-class city. The people I've met in this city have given me so much insight. The city is filled with beauty. I love that so many incredible places are so close to my home. Psychologist Mihai Csikszentmihalyi writes this, a person can make himself happy or miserable, regardless of what is actually happening outside, just by changing the contents of consciousness. So I challenge you to think more about your calling in this city. Jesus' specific call to you in this city. Don't constantly dwell on the problems, but think deeply about how Jesus can use you as his witness here. Sometimes it takes time to see how God will shape us in our context. It takes commitment to the place where he has us. I know that it can feel hard sometimes to remain committed amid all the struggles we face on a daily basis. But even in this text, we see that God gives us hope. See, Jesus knew Pergamum's flaws, but he had hope for Pergamum's future. 
In verse 16, after Jesus condemns the faithlessness of those who have followed the ways of the culture and turned away from being faithful to him, he says this. Let's look at this together. Verse 16. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The then in this text is referring to false teachers. And Jesus will come and set the record straight, so to speak. He will speak truth amidst the chaos and confusion. But Jesus does not say that he is coming now and that there is no hope. True to his character, he is a God of grace. He gives opportunity for change. Repent, he says. Otherwise, See, the call is firm and urgent, but there is time to respond. The punishment that is predicted here can be prevented. It can be prevented through repentance from these false teachings and faithfulness to Jesus. And God's faithful people in Pergamum were there to make sure that message could be heard. See, in our commitment to the place God has us, we sometimes need to allow time for God to work. We're a culture that is so impatient. We want our news articles to load faster and our food to be made quicker and our Uber driver just to get here with our food already. Come on. But God often works through long periods of faithful presence. Obviously, COVID has changed some things, but it remains true that our culture is one that loves to travel. We love to explore new places. See, we love the idea of being flexible and able to move anywhere at a moment's notice. And we even like subscriptions that we can cancel anytime instead of making yearly commitments to things. But church, there is joy found in rootedness. There is joy in staying in one place and remaining committed. I was joking with the elders. I was like, of course, the realtor is going to talk about committing to where you live, right? But the truth is this, you know, through my work, I do get to experience glimpses of this joy of being rooted. I see it each time a first-time buyer moves into their new home, there's a change in them. They're now homeowners. They have a deeper level of commitment to where they live. It's not as easy to move as it was when they were renting, which actually becomes good for them. It's like a switch has flipped oftentimes, and they mention this too. They say things like, we feel more settled now. We feel more a part of the neighborhood. They talk about wanting to engage more with the community now that they live in their house. Now, of course, I'm not saying that you have to buy a home to remain committed here, but what I am saying is that I have seen that as people level up in their commitment to their place, God has used that. 
See, Jesus calls us to be salt and light in Matthew 5. And in John 17, 15, Jesus prays this. He prays that his disciples would not be taken out of the world, but that they would be protected from the evil one while they remain in the world. See, church, Jesus himself is praying for our protection while we are here. He is with us as we faithfully commit to the city for his glory. And we're not alone. You may be thinking, okay, but how do I do that? How do I remain faithful to Jesus in San Francisco? It's hard. I need something practical to do. Well, this brings me to my final point. Jesus gives us what we need to be faithful. See, Jesus does not leave us without an answer. Let's look again to the pattern of the seven letters. Each letter begins with a particular aspect of the more detailed description of Jesus given in chapter one. Ephesus, these are the words of him who hold the golden, the seven stars in his right hand and walk among the seven golden lampstands. To Smyrna, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again, and so on. And to Pergamum, this is how Jesus is described. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. See, this unique description of Jesus in this letter holds the key to our understanding of how we remain faithful in our context. The double-edged sword here is not like a literal sword hanging out of Jesus's mouth. You know, it's meant to be a metaphor. In this case, referring to the literal words of Jesus. See, what we need to remain faithful in our city is the same thing that Pergamum needed, the words of Christ. The Greek word translated here as double-edged only appears three times in the entire New Testament. Twice actually in this section of Revelation describing Jesus. And the third time is in Hebrews 4, 12. So let's look at that now. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. See, those in Pergamum had become too accommodating to the culture around them. They become too comfortable with the cultural practices. They didn't think about how engaging in these cultural norms might actually lead them to be unfaithful to the way of Jesus. See, they may have been thinking, oh, it's just a feast. It's just a party. Come on, what's wrong with that? But they didn't think about the purpose of that party and how maybe even their presence at that party might have been at odds with Jesus' calling on their life to stay faithful to him. And it was ultimately these small thoughts of accommodation, of cultural acceptance in order not to be ostracized that actually led to greater sins of idolatry and infidelity to Jesus. Jesus. 
just like the church in Pergamum, we must guard our thoughts and our minds from similar temptations to give into the status quo of our culture. What may seem like a small thought or idea that may seem meaningless at the time can grow into a larger, more substantial barrier to our intimacy with Jesus. See, as we learn in Hebrews, the word of God judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The word is what will ultimately provide us with wisdom and discernment we need to test the ideologies of our culture and understand what we should and should not believe. See, church, we will absolutely be tempted while living here in San Francisco, tempted to compromise, tempted to accommodate, tempted to go along. But we must follow the example of Jesus when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness in Luke 4. Each time Satan tempts Jesus, Jesus responds directly with the word of God. Jesus responds and says, it is written. It is written. When we're tempted, we shouldn't search blindly for something to rebuke the temptation or try to pull something out of a hat. We should respond as Jesus did. It is written. Now you may be thinking that was Jesus. Of course, he knew everything there was to know about God's word. He could respond like that in the face of temptation. I'm not that familiar with everything it says. Well, church, it's never too late to start learning the teachings of Jesus, to start learning the word of God. As part of our rule of life as a church, we've committed to doing daily bread together, being with God, reading God's word, encountering God, applying God's word, and devoting ourselves to him each day. Let's start there. Pick up one of those. You can go to the website and see the reading plan. Just jump in. Maybe read the words of Christ in the Gospels or the Sermon on the Mount. Read through the Gospel of John to learn about the life of Jesus. Just start and Jesus will begin shaping you. You know, if you're doing bread and maybe you're in the word regularly, I challenge you to level up. Start meditating on scripture. Start memorizing the word. Now, maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for some time and you feel that you know the word well. Well, I challenge you to level up even more. Study a teaching of Jesus in depth. Really marinate in the word. Commit to memorizing maybe an entire book of the Bible. One of my wife's spiritual mentors um, had the entire New Testament memorized. I was always so challenged by that. But again, faithful presence, faithful commitment, right? If you do that, you'll literally have God's word with you at all times. See, engage even deeper and in new ways with God's word and you'll find that he has a way of revealing himself and making himself even more beautiful to you. Ultimately, when we remain faithful to Jesus where he's called us, he promises us a reward. Let's look at verse 17. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. 
Now this is meant to imply intimacy with Jesus and full acceptance. Intimacy and acceptance now, while we live in a city with unique challenges and intimacy and acceptance in the future when we will ultimately be with Jesus. So church, I want to close by speaking the words of God over you. This is our fuel for faithfulness. So I invite you to close your eyes and open your hands and receive these words. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Joshua 1.9. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Jeremiah 29.7. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. Matthew 5.16. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, Matthew eleven twenty eight. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you, John twenty twenty one. And I am with you always to the very end of the age, Matthew twenty eight twenty. See, these are words we need right now to remain faithful, church. May the Spirit fill us with faith. See, church, we are a community following Jesus, seeking renewal in our city. As we embed ourselves in this city, may you, with the words of Christ in your heart and mind, remain faithful to our city. May your specific presence here bring light to dark places, bring true justice peace and renewal for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words of Christ. May we, your church, remain faithful in the context of the city where you have placed us. Thank you for your promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. Grow our love for our city and at the same time, grow our love for you. Amen.